Well, good evening. Glad to have you back on this rainy uh, Sunday. Uh, I think we were rain affected today, but our, our closing hymn today is Jesus Shall Rain, and I think we got the rain. <laughs> we got that all squared away. So we're glad you could be here. I want to thank uh, Jim Robinson for volunteering to do sound booth duty. And uh, Sue Ellison for greeting, and we appreciate Sue being there. Good smiling face there to greet you when he came in. Thank you very much. And to Gordon and the choir, because the choir was here uh, an hour and 15 minutes ago rehearsing. So we thank you very much, choir, for doing that extra work and being here with us. Everything you need for tonight's service is going to be in that, in that little bulletin of yours, except the first hymn, which is 228 in the hymnals, which will be in either underneath or in front of you. And uh, you can pull that out right now and turn to 228, because that'll be our opener. And uh, oh yeah, they made me in charge of the bulletins this week. So it says that we're going to be, uh, the sermon text is Genesis 3.15. Well, I'm not sure that Greg squeezed everything out of three, Genesis 3.15 last week, but that's not what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about Psalm 72. So I got it half right. I got it down uh, down below, but I missed it on the, on the sermon text here. So it's going to actually be Psalm 72. And I think, uh, oh yeah, Thursday, where all, all systems go, we have about 65 people signed up for the Expositors Conference, which is very good. Very happy about that. And... Um, Look forward to seeing you there, and I think we're all out of announcements. Pastor, you got anything? Okay, there it is. So, let's take a few moments now and prepare our hearts for worship. Call to worship Haggai chapter 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations. And the tired of all nations will come. And I will build the The silver and the gold are mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace, Stand with me, 228. Rejoice the Lord. 
God and Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be here tonight to sing your praises, to rejoice that you indeed are king, and a benevolent king you are, God. We thank you that we can worship at your footstool. We thank you that we have the privilege of access into the throne room of the king. And so, God, we pray that you would bless us this evening. Thank you for Pastor and the work he's done. Pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would rest on him tonight so that we might hear your words and see Christ even in the Old Testament. Thank you, God, for this privilege of worship. Please bless us and please receive a blessing. We pray in the name of Jesus, our strong Savior. Amen. Let's remain standing and sing to him who sits on the throne. You have the words in your folder. You may be seated for the beginning of this song. Let's sing the chorus first. We exalt thee. We did it this morning. How beautiful it was. Sing it with me. We exalt thee. Oh, oh, oh. 
Thou art exalted far above all gods. For Thou, O Lord, art high above all the It's your turn tonight, didn't you know? <laughs> that was good. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Well, we've had a good full day. We've had a lot of rain for a February, but uh, we take what the Lord gives us. I was uh, thinking about this. Some of you have said, uh, well, you've had a long day. Let me tell you how it used to be. Back in the 2000s, let's see, from about 19... Well, from about the year 2000 through the year 2010, I typically did two morning services on Sunday. We had an 8.30 and 11 o'clock service in Locust, and oftentimes I would teach Sunday school in between. And many times in the evening, before the evening service, I would have a new members class, particularly for kids. And I remember in particular one Sunday where I preached the 8.30 service, taught Sunday school, did the 11 o'clock service, had a funeral in the afternoon, did the new membership class, and preached that night. And somebody said, are you going to take tomorrow off? And I said, there's no need. Rigor mortis is already setting in. <laughs> we had some full days in those days, but uh, that was good. That was good. So we're fine. Let me, uh, hey, since I've got the choir tonight, right, preaching to the choir, Thought we'd do Psalm 72 since I found out we were going to be doing uh, Jesus Shall Reign. This is the uh, psalm that Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, based that hymn on. Isaac Watts is an interesting individual. He was uh, raised in the Congregational Church, though Calvinist. He nevertheless uh, grew up in something of a child prodigy. He came home one Sunday complaining about the music they were singing in church. I'm not sure that I'll get these lines exactly right, but uh, they sang something along the lines of, uh, uh, well, how was it, uh, about uh, the, the seeing you mighty beasts, the Lord's praises, Lord, while up from the ground you coddlings peep and wag your tails about. It was, it was not even a rhyme. 
And Watts came home complaining about it. And his father said, being a deacon in the church and a wise man, he said, uh, well, if you don't like the songs, why don't you write one of your own? And he did. He brought it back out and he read it to his father. And his father said, that's good. <laughs> they took it to the pastor and read it to him and he liked it and they ended up singing it. And the man ended up writing hundreds of hymns over the course of his lifetime. One of those being Jesus shall reign. One of the things Watts was able to bring to the church was the ability to take the Old Testament hymnal, the Psalms, and present them in a way that they gave forth the Old Testament truth with New Testament light, with Christ being the, the focus, the focal point. That was not without controversy. The first general assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America occurred after the Constitution was adopted. And in about 1789, Washington was sworn in, and that general assembly was held in Philadelphia, and at least one pastor in Kentucky rode the entire trip to Philadelphia to persuade the church not to use those awful hymns by Watts. He thought the church should sing only the Psalms and that a cappella without accompaniment. So, you know, there, there's always been a worship war going on. There's nothing new. By the way, Gordon, I don't subscribe to that school of thought, so we're, we're okay. I happen to like instruments. But I'm just saying, you know, we, we sing these hymns, and some people say, well, those are old hymns, and they're ancient. Well, at one time they were new, and even they were controversial, as biblical as they are. But let's look at the text, Psalm 72, which is interesting because uh, we'll note, first of all, that it is not recognized as a messianic psalm in the New Testament. There is no quotation of this psalm in the New Testament that would cause us to designate it as messianic. But even so, there can be little question that it nevertheless talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 72, beginning with verse 1, ascribed to Solomon, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son, May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor or defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All nations serve him, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. 
Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave and may its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. We'll ask the Lord to bless this reading of his word. Let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, in the, in the moments that we have together, please give us understanding of this passage of Scripture. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has inspired it. We pray that not only would we be able more clearly to understand it, but we pray that you'll accomplish the transformation that you desire in us through it. May we see Jesus more clearly. May we exalt you more gladly. May our lives be more holy as a result. Sanctify us, we pray. Save us if that be needed. And otherwise be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story. Muhammad Ali was on a passenger airliner, I was told. And he was there as the flight attendant was making her way down the aisle and telling everybody to buckle their seatbelts. And Muhammad Ali refused. He said, I don't need to buckle my seatbelt. She said, yes, you do. Everyone needs to buckle their seatbelt. He said, Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. She looked at him and said, Superman doesn't need an airplane. Now buckle your seatbelts. I tell that with fondness for the man. I'm not sincerely. I don't intend to make any fun at all. But it's a story, I think, that, that highlights the limitations of human beings how we like to make more of ourselves than we should and exalt ourselves into a higher position than we ought to. And there's no group of people on earth more prone to do that than those in leadership. It's one of the pitfalls and dangers of leadership, you know, that you begin to believe your own press. You know, the people that are out there advocating for you and saying all the wonderful things about you, and at some point you begin to think, oh, wow, that must be true. Solomon comes to the throne of Israel following David. How would you like to do that? You know, it's intimidating enough for me to be here following the footsteps of John Anderson. I kind of know how Solomon felt. What do you do after that? How does that work? I'm not joking. We think about those who have gone before us in similar fashion, and we think about how David... In so many ways, as a seminal king, he had united the kingdom together. Finally, they were something of a success. You know, after all those years of, of, of peaks and valleys, and the peaks weren't really all that high, but the valleys were particularly low in their moral experience. And now they're dominant in the region. Now, secular historians look back and they say scoffingly, well, that's only because the surrounding nations were in a weakened position. Had they been strong then Israel wouldn't have been able to have achieved that level of military supremacy. Well, who's in charge of those kinds of things? Why is that an objection? If God is sovereign, in his providence, he certainly weakened those nations and had them at that 
point so that his people were experiencing that supremacy. Same thing is true today. But even so, David's days were coming to an end. And so we have this labeled at the end of one section of Psalms and the beginning of another, a Psalm of Solomon. Now it can be rendered a Psalm to Solomon. But it seems in keeping with the rest of Scripture that this would be his Psalm. And it also seems consistent, particularly given the last verse that we read, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. His life on earth is coming to an end, and this is something that marks the beginning of another reign and kingship. And yet, Solomon, by no stretch of the imagination, fulfills the things that are spoken of the king in this passage of Scripture. Here was an extremely flawed individual. Whatever else Solomon may have accomplished in his reign, he did not, could not, achieve the things that are delineated in Psalm 72. So even though we don't recognize it as a messianic psalm in the same way that we would say Psalm 2 or 22, yet Charles Hodge, who was an esteemed theologian back in the, back in the 19th century, most every church-going person, certainly anyone that had access to a newspaper and outside news, they would have known who Charles Hodge was. He was not just a leading Presbyterian theologian. He was looked upon as a leading theologian in the nation, highly respected and esteemed. In his uh, Systematic Theology, Volume 1, as I recall, I think it's about page 492 if you want to know exactly. The 72nd Psalm contained a description of an exalted king and the blessings of his reign. These blessings are of such nature as to prove that the subject of the psalm must be a divine person. Right? He's just simply observing the obvious. No mere mortal could fulfill all of these things that are said there. One, his kingdom is to be everlasting. So that rules out everybody we know, right? It's not just a matter of term limits. People don't live but a certain age. Sooner or later, they are going away. Two, it's universal. Three, it secures perfect peace with God and goodwill among men. No matter how successful a leader may be, he can't achieve peace between us and God. I mean, can you imagine anybody running on that campaign platform in this election year? Vote for me and you will have peace with God. Of course, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody doesn't promise that. Or try to. Four, all men are to be brought to submit to him through love. Five, in him all the nations of the earth are to be blessed. For example, as we are distinctly taught in Galatians 3.16, it is in him that all the blessings of redemption are to come upon the world the subject, says Hodge, of this psalm is therefore the redeemer of the world. Let there be no mistake. Centuries before Jesus comes. So if we take this to be Christ and if we take this to be his kingdom, what may we know about his kingdom? First of all, the ethos, the character of the kingdom is righteousness. That's how it's known. Today we judge matters in terms of economic prosperity, Military success, 
Um, like my uncle used to say, all I want to know is what they're going to do for me when I elect them. Righteousness is the key. Look at verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, which is another word that refers to righteousness, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness. This is moral perfection. The problem that we have with people who are in positions of authority, particularly civil authority, but oftentimes ecclesiastical authority, is that they, they don't decide matters correctly. They don't decide matters righteously. They decide things based on what they're going to get out of it and how much they can skim off the top. Not to be cynical, but often that's the case. Here we don't have to be concerned about that. Not only does this king have God's righteousness, he will judge with righteousness. And this righteous king will bestow and defend righteousness. So there's a moral perfection here that only Jesus possesses. He came into the world and he did no sin. He proclaimed the coming of the kingdom. Behold, the kingdom of God is here or near you or all the ways that we can render that. But the point is, hey, it's here. And the nature of everything changes. Our understanding of what that kingdom is uh, goes through a transformation. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people in the hills in righteousness. Here he's talking about land masses even producing. You know, we can't have any effect on the rain, whether it rains or whether it doesn't or whether the sun shines. What can we do to cause a whole mountain range to give forth food and produce? Only the Lord God can do that. And so we see something of uh, a new heaven and a new earth here where even barren things give forth life. But righteousness is the nature, or rather the ethos, the character of the kingdom. Defending the cause of the poor of the people, those who normally don't have a voice, those who normally are, are left out of the decision-making, will be included. Then we look at verses uh, 5 through 7. How long does the rain last? May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. <laughs> you know... I've just been around now for going on 57 years. How long has the moon been here? I know that gets into a loaded question, doesn't it? You're an, you're an old earth or young earth and all those sorts of things. The point is the moon has outlasted everybody I know. I mean, it's like somebody told me years ago. It is a fact that everybody who ate pickles in the year 1880 is now dead. The moon, the sun, outlasts all, right? So we're, we're not talking about a term of office. We're not talking about an exceptionally long uh, liver. I mean, even if you're talking about Methuselah living over 900 years, the moon still outlasted him. It still is there. So we're talking about a rain that lasts forever. Another quote, not from Scripture, but from Charles Spurgeon that I thought was just too good to pass up. We see on the shore of times of time, the wrecks of Caesars, the relics of the Mughals, and the remnants of the Ottomans, Charlemagne. There's some guy in the news going around with the name Charlemagne, I've noticed here recently. I don't think his mother named him that either. Charlemagne, Maximilian, Napoleon, how they flit like shadows before us. 
They were and are not. But Jesus forever is. That's an extraordinary statement. And the more that we look unto Jesus and realize that our faith is anchored in him, the more confident we are and the more peace we experience knowing that he's not going anywhere. That's why hymns like Rock of Ages are so meaningful to us. We think of a rock that's not moving. It's not going anywhere. We're talking about something that can provide us safety and it's of substance and it always endures. And that's a wonderful metaphor that the Bible uses and that is for us a declaration of the great power, staying power of the Lord Jesus. May they fear you while the sun endures, indeed while the moon exists. May you be like the rain that falls on the mown grass, thinking about how that brings forth life. You know, you can, back in the days when we were doing such things, maybe some of you still do, actually get out and mow the yard. And then it would rain, and the next morning it was already starting to grow. And you're like, no, slow down a little bit. But, you know, life, life comes because the Lord gives life. That's what this, this is telling us. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. So when we think about this eternal kingdom, when we think about the coming of Christ and the establishment of this kingdom, we're, we're talking about something that will flourish, that will exhibit life, that will grow. C.S. Lewis described it. When he talked about the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus and its effect, he said it's as if death works backwards. Think of that. Everything we know is in a state of entropy. You know, it's, it's dying. It's moving from a state of complexity to simplicity. Metal rusts, wood rots. Um, things die. People die. But in the new kingdom, when it comes in its fullness, None of that will be anymore. It's all flourishing in life as if death works backwards. It will all be new and renewed. It's extraordinary. It's a wonderful promise. And it's right here in the Old Testament. And um, and we see that in 5 through 7. Well, quickly, as you get the point, where, where is this king's dominion? And I'm not talking about a theme park. What are, what are the boundaries? It's always an important subject, isn't it? Whether you're buying property or whether you're thinking about a state. You ever read up any or seen any of the programs that talk about the states fighting over the boundaries and where the things lay? North Carolina and South Carolina, just in recent years, finally settled where the boundary is. And there were a lot of people not happy because they thought they were in South Carolina and they wound up in North Carolina and they had to pay a bunch more in taxes. Now, thankfully, the two legislatures passed laws that said that they couldn't collect back taxes. But, you know, after centuries, they finally were just getting those boundary lines settled. And so it becomes an important matter. What's the domain? You don't have to worry about that with the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. His domain is everywhere. And this takes on particularly importance when you think about the Israelites who were so used to thinking in terms of boundaries and how far the kingdom had extended. It extended further under David than it had anybody before, and Solomon would extend it even further. It would advance to its greatest extent under Solomon. But even with that, it was still a small country. But Christ comes and institutes the new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and it's, it's everywhere. 
so that as we worship the Lord, it doesn't matter where we are, whether we're in southwest Florida or whether, as uh, I remember being struck by this in Papua New Guinea outside of the city of Medang at a place called Umbaldi up on a ridge where we'd hiked. We'd gone by a World War II airstrip where there were still ordnance on the ground. It would be marked with a, somebody would paint a skull and crossbones or something there by this piece of ordnance. And, you know, even a dimwit like me knew better than to reach down and pick it up. And uh, there we were worshiping with these folks whose language we couldn't understand. We didn't understand a lot of their manners and customs. I ate food there that I was never able to identify then or since. But what wonderful fellowship we had. And it reminded me that the kingdom of God knows no boundaries. It doesn't matter whether you live in Florida or whether you're in Papua New Guinea. You could be in Antarctica where the gospel penetrates and transforms lives. There is the kingdom of God. And when it comes in its fullness... The whole of the new heavens and the new earth, everything will be, in fact, the kingdom of God. That's why we long for that. And that's astounding because everything now is, is uh, based on differences and competition and us against them. And this was so hard for the Jewish people in the time of the Lord Jesus to grasp. They wanted a Messiah who would come and trounce the Romans. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them failed to understand that a Messiah would come who not only would be the Savior of the Jews, but the Savior of any who put their trust in him. And so rather than violently, violently overthrowing political entities, he transforms the lives of people who are in those kingdoms and thus making one kingdom people who were separate and distinct in terms of ethnicity, descent, suddenly are thrown together as family. And we continue to see that. That's why this psalm became a basis for Watts' hymn that was used by the earliest Protestant missionaries in the 1700s. Jesus Shall Reign was sung by many of them in the 1850s. There were thousands of people in one remote location who sang Watts hymn, Jesus Shall Reign, in their native tongue as their king took down the idol that they had been worshiping and proclaimed that they would worship the one true and living God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It had great impetus in that way because there was a realization that the dominion of the kingdom is everywhere. May he have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The Euphrates is here, but it doesn't mean it stops there. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. That never happened with Solomon, but it will with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know how the New Testament bears that out. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Beyond that, we see an answer to the question, what is the king like? We see in verse 12, for he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. Here is someone who actually acts according to God-likeness and actually comes to the aid of those who are in need. This is the Lord Jesus 
demonstrating that in the course of his life. Healing lepers. Just take that one example. Nobody had anything to do with a leper. When a leper was out and somebody was coming by, he had to yell out, unclean, unclean, and, and you skirted a wide girth around him. You did not have anything to do with a leper. And Jesus comes. Not only does he associate with them, he touches them. And he heals them. By Jewish custom and observation, that should have made him unclean. But being God in the flesh, it was his cleanness that transmitted to the individual with the leprosy. And so rather than Christ becoming unclean, he made the individuals clean that he touched. Nobody could achieve and accomplish that. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, had no cure for leprosy. That's just the one example. We know all of the others. He delivers the needy when he calls. How many would like to be helped? But call on the wrong entity to come to their aid. Christ hears. What does he provide? Abundant blessings. Look at verses 15 through 17. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. You know, when you, uh, when you encounter... Um, Skipped over compassionate. We'll come back to that in a moment. When we, when we see in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, gold, grain, fruit, and a flourishing population, that where gold and grain and fruit are mentioned, you're talking about a kind of prosperity that is not just uh, the result of sound economic policy. It's a result of God providing rain on the earth and sun a result of God's blessings bringing forth an abundance. Again, this is the Lord Jesus. But then backing up to verses 12 through 14, a compassionate king. What is he like? How many people that we see who are famous, how many of them do we really know? What are they really like? That's always interesting. Ever since I was a little boy and would hear stories about various ones, and I was no point getting into particulars of who they were. But, you know, so many times I would get feedback from somebody who saw somebody that was famous and said, boy, they're nothing like they are on TV. And that's so often the case. Um, but Christ, Christ, even though we're 2,000 years removed from his time on earth, you don't have to worry about whether he's undergone a change of personality, whether he's uh, become hardened of heart toward those who are in need. He still is compassionate and loving and kind and gracious and saves those who call upon him because he keeps his word. He is compassionate. Now, will there be a judgment day? Will God render judgment against those who reject his son? Of course that will happen. But when we call out to God, asking for mercy, we can be confident that in our repentance and in our calling out by faith, we'll receive mercy because of his compassion. He delivers the needy when he calls. Having talked about the abundant blessings, I mean, how can you beat it? You know, On the 22nd this week, Thursday, marks the day when I realized a few years ago when I found it 
located in a book where I'd actually written it down for a long time. I didn't know. I just knew it was sometime around February. But February 22nd, when I finally came to the place, I said, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll go where you want me to go. That was a hard thing for me to get there. You know, being a, a Presbyterian, I was um, in college. I'd been elected a deacon in my church and was teaching Sunday school and able to do things that I knew I wouldn't be able to do in another Presbyterian church anywhere in the world because those people loved me and encouraged me and gave me opportunities like that. But, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to serve the Lord knowing that he was calling me, but I didn't want to say that I was willing to go just anywhere. In fact, I didn't want to go much further than the county line. Family been there for eight generations. It was home, and you've heard me tell this story before, but it was such an important moment for me to realize that when God's call is on your life, that we can trust him to provide for us. He's not a harsh taskmaster. It's not like those people that we've all worked for at some point in our lives who will tell you to do something just because they want to be able to show you they can tell you to do something. It doesn't matter whether it's productive or not. Daddy used to talk about being in the army, you know, and he'd joke, and they'd say, yeah, they'd tell you to move the sand pile from there over to here. Then when you got done, they'd come back and say, all right, move it back over there. There was no reason to it, you know, just somebody wanting you to know that they had authority. We've all worked under people like that. I hope you've not been somebody like that. But Jesus is not like that. He's compassionate. And surrendering to him doesn't mean we, we really give up anything. Sure, we relinquish things. But look at what we get in return. Because he is so loving and so kind and compassionate. Can you imagine any of the disciples at the end of their lives, if we believe the, the traditional reports about how they died, whether it was Peter being crucified upside down or the others who died ignobly, that any of them would have said, boy, I wish I'd taken another path. So many went to their martyrs' deaths, dying horrible forms of execution, who nevertheless embraced the moment because they knew that what the Lord Christ had for them was far greater than any current temporary suffering that they might have to endure, even flames from the wood underneath their feet. How should we respond? Endless praise. That's what heaven will be like. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. What is it that we're really out to accomplish in missions? I mean, if we're going to ask the question in keeping with our expositors conference on Thursday, you know, why do we do what we do? First of all, what do we do and why do we do it? Of course, the command is to make disciples of all the nations. What's the purpose? Well, you can say, well, we want everybody to follow Christ. Or we can say, we don't want people to go to hell. We would like them to join us in heaven. But isn't the real goal this, that the whole earth would be filled with his glory, that worship services like this one would be taking, not just services, but worship would be taking place throughout the whole world, whether in a building like this one or out underneath trees? like we were in Romania back in 
1994, we were meeting in a shell of a building that just had some bare rafters overhead. We were sitting on some wooden benches. It had been a building bulldozed by the communists when the Ceausescu regime was in full force. And now those people, as freedom was beginning to take root, they were rebuilding that building, but they still had so very little. You know what their accompaniment was? A man would pull a blade of grass from the field and place it between his thumbs as a reed, and he would blow on it, and it was a trumpet. Kathy can tell you it sounded exactly like a trumpet. And we sang everything from what sounded to me like when the roll is called up yonder. I have no idea what the lyrics were in Romanian. To holy, holy, holy. And that man was up there blowing through his thumbs with that little reed of grass. That was all they had. We were fed a meal out on a hillside after a worship service once in a little village. And while we were eating, they, something was being whispered around the room. And I remember sitting there, and finally the word got to us, just wanting us to know. Someone in the know, in our group, wanted us to know that these dear souls were spending up to one month's wages to feed us that day. You know, my first response was, I can't, I can't eat that. And then I thought, no, they're showing us hospitality. Perhaps the worst thing I could do would be to reject it. We ate, and we thought, well, why would they do that? Because we were family. It was like homecoming for them. Family had come from the United States to visit them. We were brothers and sisters in Christ. And there we were. In worshiping, they couldn't understand much of what we said. We couldn't understand them, and I've experienced that so much, and I'm so thankful that even though linguistically, we're not on the same page yet spiritually. We are, and the Lord knows all of that, and it's a beautiful harmony in his ears. So what is it that we're after? It is that the whole earth would be filled with his glory. What is the answer to the Middle Eastern conflict? It won't be solved through political machinations. There's a place for that. You've got to have diplomacy. Sometimes there has to be military action. I'm not getting on into all the details of that, but what I know ultimately is there will not be peace. There cannot be peace until our hearts are at peace with God. Of course, that ultimately won't happen until Jesus comes back and his kingdom is realized in its fullness. But this psalm points us there, as so much of the Old Testament does, and that's why we're taking time on these Sunday evenings to plow through and Look at how Christ is revealed in this old covenant, realizing that he fulfills it in the new. So when we sing, Jesus shall reign, it's a prayer. Do you realize we're singing prayers so often in our hymnody and our worship songs? Sometimes we're testifying to each other. I'm so glad that Jesus loves me. That's a testimony right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's testifying. We're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, even as we're worshiping the Lord. But there are other times when we're uttering prayers. Jesus shall reign. At one and the same time, it is a song of testimony. We're declaring to the world, Jesus is going to reign. But at the same time, we're praying, Jesus reign. Come and reign. 
he's the world's answer. I know you know that. I'm preaching to the choir, right? So when I was wrestling with my ability to get up in front of people and talk, thinking I could go into politics and maybe be elected to office, I realized that what the world needed was not more politicians. What the world needs is the Lord Jesus. And so at this point in my life, I don't want to take a demotion to be president. Or to be the head of the UN. You and I are ambassadors for the king. What higher position could we have? What greater news could we carry? What solution could anyone come up with that even is close to what Christ has provided for us? So we have to fulfill our responsibilities as citizens of the state. I realize that we have a civil responsibility. But we realize the solution is not coming out of Washington or Tallahassee. There may be solutions, plural, that achieve good things. Don't want to be cynical and diminish that. There is a place for governance in the world. But the real solution has come straight from heaven in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will reign forever and ever and ever and ever. Praise his name. Heavenly Father. As we thank you for our Lord Christ, we pray, O oh Lord, that we will be a people who rejoice in him as we pray that his kingdom will come in its fullness. Father, we know that you know best. We know that your plan encompasses far more than we can imagine. We know, Father, that Christ will not return until the last one that you've called from the foundation of the world is gathered into the family. But, Lord, please bless us as we lift our eyes to the great vast horizon beyond, as we look unto Jesus, give us a longing for his appearing and for his kingdom in its fullness to come. In the meantime, use us to voice the message that lives will be transformed, that more and more people like us, will come to see who Jesus really is and surrender to him. We pray in his name. Amen. Choir, would you come forward, please? <clears throat> present this first of all. It's a powerful, powerful anthem in itself. <clears throat> Jesus shall reign.
I bet you there's a lot of people out there that just want to join the choir right now and sing this. Would you please stand and come forward? Bring your paper and come forward. Let's make a big circle around this auditorium and sing this song. Stand. This is not for you, this is for our God, as we sing his praise. Jesus shall reign, sing together. Jesus shall
and unto the King eternal be all power, dominion, and praise, both now and forevermore. And everyone says,